following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, well, good morning. All right, well, if you have a Bible, that's better. I'd like you to turn uh, with me to 1 Peter and chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, I've called this message uh, Special Cases. Special Cases. I heard about a man in America, uh, and he was fighting the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, which is really kind of, this is a bulge here, I have one, um, which most people fight from the age of about 35, especially men. And uh, he was fighting the Battle of the Bulge, trying to keep his weight down, and he was on a diet, trying to, uh, he felt... Uh, he was trying to lose some weight and uh, he was driving to work one day and he uh, had this craving for a donut and a cup of coffee and he knew this was kind of forbidden for his diet but he resolved that when he drove past the, uh, the donut stand that if it was a parking space he would take that as a sign that he was to stop and get one and on the, on the seventh time around the block there was a parking space and he took that as a sign and he stopped and he bought a donut and got some coffee. Alright, so we're in First Peter. Uh, and if you've not been around for rec- in recent weeks, I'm going to give you a summary of, uh, of the message of First Peter, that we've, things that we've already covered and thought about. So it's roughly 30 years since the, the, since the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So about 30 years since events which uh, turned the world upside down, and continue to do so and, and change the destiny of this planet forever. And here in this letter, Peter, who is the disciple and apostle and shepherd of Jesus Christ, is writing to Christians in Asia Minor, which is now which is modern-day Turkey, and he's writing to them to prepare them for persecution at the hands of the Roman state. And persecution, just in the Roman Empire alone, would continue for the next 250 years for believers... Uh, so in decades to come, uh, the Roman Empire would demand that you, if you were a citizen of Rome, or not a citizen of Rome, if you lived in the Roman Empire, that you had to confess that Caesar was Lord, and you had to do that publicly in front of officials who would monitor that you'd done that. And not to do so, not to confess that Caesar was Lord, was a capital offence. And understandably, many of the followers of Jesus refused to confess that Caesar was Lord. How could they? Because they knew that Jesus is Lord of the universe. But that wasn't their only problem. You see, uh, Christians increasingly became, a, became scapegoats in the Roman Empire. It was a pagan empire. We thought about this last week. They refused to attend uh, temples that were dedicated to the Roman gods and offer them necessary sacrifices. And so it became widely rumoured that it was the Christians who'd made the gods angry, the Roman gods angry. So when a battle was lost or there was an earthquake across the, in, somewhere in the Roman Empire... And then people looked around to see who was to blame. Uh, and they blamed the Christians, because the Christians hadn't offered the necessary sacrifices to the gods of Rome. They'd made them, they'd made them angry. So the local mob turned up at the, in the neighbourhood of the Christians to beat them up, or worse. So it was against this, that kind of background that Peter writes. Uh, he knows that these Christians are in need of teaching to prepare them to stand in coming hours. And they're coming out of trial and not to buckle under pressure. 
So I said to you last week to think of the book of uh, 1 Peter not as a book to study in a university or a seminary library in a nice quiet location. Of course you might do that. Uh, but it's really a book to teach Christians how to die, how to suffer and how to die. First Peter. So Peter's writing to reassure people, and I think they are mostly Gentile believers, uh, that their faith in Jesus Christ is not in vain. He's writing to them to remind them that the whole Christian project is worth the effort. It's worth all of the pain that goes with it. Because, and this is how he begins his letter, in the final analysis, Christians have hope. They have hope in an inheritance which which is stored up for them in heaven, which no man or woman or empire or emperor uh, can take away from them. And one day that inheritance will be theirs. So Peter had kind of a special qualification for writing these things. Not only had Jesus told him that he himself would die uh, as a a kind of martyr, um, as a Christian martyr, But he was also an eyewitness of the times of Christ on the earth. So Peter lived with Jesus, he heard his teaching, he saw Jesus die, he saw the empty tomb. But most importantly of all, Peter met the risen Christ and eventually he saw him ascending into heaven. Uh, And the message of this letter letter is that just as Christ suffered, so will his people. But just as Christ triumphed in the end, so will his people triumph. But now, as he writes to them, uh, um, in the the same way that Christ was rejected by men, but God took Christ up and made him the the cornerstone of a new temple uh, that we call the church, so Christ's people might be rejected by the world, but they're not rejected by God. Again, Christ is our pattern. So instead, uh, God takes up the rejected ones, the ones rejected by the world, these precious believers, And he builds them into that temple which is to be a dwelling for himself on the earth, which is the church. So collectively, uh, Peter says, you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people belonging to God himself. So Peter kind of considers uh, the struggles of suffering, but he also considers the privilege of being God's people. People who are redeemed, uh, not with silver and gold, which are perishable, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the response, says Peter, to all of this gospel message is that we are called to live a life of holiness. Uh, And he quotes the Old Testament, uh, just as uh, God is holy, you shall be holy in all of your lives. Our lives will be set apart for God, they are to be separate from sin. And then Peter says, and this kind of comes to the end of the uh, previous passage, Peter says that your lives are are to be so exemplary that even the enemies of Christianity may look at your lives and be amazed Um, at how you live and they might concede that God is with you and glorify Christ on the day of his visitation that's how he kind of finishes the previous section so that's just a short summary of Peter's theology in the first chapter and a half of his um, letter so Peter's saying really let the gospel of Jesus Christ shape your vision and your worldview. allow the truths of the gospel to enable you to cope with difficult times ahead, times of trial and persecution. And then we come to this morning's passage. And after lots of theology, Peter gets practical. And what we find him now is giving teaching in three particular areas where Christians might feel squeezed, uh, where they might find that their lives are uh, difficult. So these are three occasions 
where Peter seems to think that they need some special teaching. That's why I've called these special cases. So the first one is Christians as subjects of a state, which is chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Christians as subjects of a state. And then the second um, section is uh, where, where Peter speaks to Christian slaves or servants. That's in chapter 2, 18 to 25. And then the third section is Christians as spouses, husbands and wives. So we'll think about that next week. That's in chapter 3. So this morning we'll think about Christians as subjects of a state. And then we'll think about Christians as sl- living as slaves or as servants. So first of all, uh, Christians as subjects of a state. And I'm going to read from verse 13. So Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to an emperor as supreme, so the emperor as supreme, or governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Alright, so remember the context here. You're a believer and you're living in a hostile world. And here's the question, how do you live in relation to the state or the government? Especially when the state that you are in which is the Roman state at this time, might be the means of your persecution. And this is, of course, a familiar issue right throughout human history. Uh, the state has more often, been not, uh, more often than not been an instrument of oppression towards Christian believers. Uh, of course, this uh, issue of how we relate to the state is still very much a live issue in today's world, even if you come from a nation which uh, believes in freedom of religion, like uh, America or, as I do, the United Kingdom or Germany or India. Uh, We live at a time when religious freedom is being severely eroded by uh, governing elites who hate Christianity and all that it stands for. And we're moving from a situation uh, in those kind of countries where freedom is being replaced by fear to conform to certain new moral codes. We live at a time where modern states have enormous amounts of power. Uh, increasingly, there was this expectation that governments have the right, uh, kind of from the top down, to manage every single aspect of our lives. And so you've had the growth of the state with the decline of the significance of the citizen. Historically, uh, especially Western nations were based on the idea that the citizen was almost king, that the citizen had an awful lot of power and discretion to make decisions for themselves and live in a kind of situation of freedom. But that's increasingly being eroded as the citizen is being replaced by the big state. So here's the question that I want to think about this morning. is When the state is against you, and there might be a temptation to hate the state because they're about to persecute you or persecuting you, then how do you live? So can we say something like this? Because we submit to God, we don't have to submit to the state. And according to Peter, the answer is no. Uh, Peter says we are to be subject to human institutions, uh, whether, the, uh, whether it's the emperor or governors 
And he says to the governors, interestingly, he says, have, have a God-given responsibility to punish evildoers. So Peter seems to be saying something very similar to what Paul says in Romans 13. Uh, and in Romans 13, Paul says that the state is instituted by God. Uh, and uh, Paul says this, and Peter says that, is that, that governors, uh, that rulers are sent by God to punish those who do evil, and here to praise those who do good. So I think that, and I think this is Peter's point, that if the state is ordained by God, I'm going to qualify all this in a minute, but if the state is qualified by God, then Christians have a duty to submit to its laws as a general principle. I think that's what Peter's saying. So, the point is that the believer isn't allowed to, allowed to be an anarchist. An anarchist is somebody who lives without any reference to law. Uh, we're not allowed to live without any reference to the state's authority. Uh, so in many circumstances, to ignore the state's authority is to ignore God who ordained the state. And to fail to submit to the state is to fail to submit to God. I think that's what Peter means and Paul means in Romans. <coughs> so I think that the least that this means is that, that citizens are, are to be good citizens of the state. And they're to submit to the state whenever their conscience allows them to do so. So, of course, this doesn't mean that Christians are to obey the state when doing so means that they have to compromise their Christian convictions. It certainly doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that Christians are not to be rebels. We're not to be people who are difficult to govern. Um, Even if you don't like the government, and even if you don't trust the government, that doesn't matter. We're not to be difficult people to govern. Uh, I don't know if you, um, most of you will know the American president, Ronald Reagan, 1980 till 1988, he was in the American president. Uh, he once was making a speech and he said, what are the 11 most dangerous words in the English language? Uh, and then he, he told you what they were. Um, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you the 11 most dangerous words in the English language. Um, now I think, you know, I have some sympathy with what Reagan said, but I think it's true to say that, that good states do a lot of good. Uh, and what Reagan was getting at was the overreach of the state in the modern world. So the point is that Christians are not to be rebels. And let me try to give you an example of this. So I, I come from a country where there was a kind of general attitude towards the law that says, what can I get away with? Uh, What can I do and not get caught? How can I live in this world and ignore certain laws to get advantage for myself? There's a kind of general attitude in the Western world uh, that you uh, should look after yourself because nobody else will. So you're kind of permitted to um, be economical with the truth when you do your tax return. Uh, You pay in cash to avoid... uh, Anybody being able to trace payments you've made so you avoid paying uh, cash, especially if you're self-employed, or maybe when you fill out your form to get your welfare payments, you're just a bit, again, a bit economical with the truth. You know, those kind of attitudes are very commonplace across the world. Maybe they're even the norm. So in my country, the United Kingdom, about 10 years ago, our politicians themselves, who are supposed to be governing us, were caught uh, cheating on their expenses and claiming things that they shouldn't claim for, like the repair of their garden pond or whatever it was, all these things that they cheated on. There's this attitude that, what can I get away with? But I think Peter's point is that Christians are not allowed to join in. We are 
to obey the laws of the land where we can willingly and be good citizens. And we are to show honesty and integrity. We are to be easy to govern. So just because we think that we answer to only God alone, that doesn't mean that we can ignore the speed limit, and I'm talking to myself here, uh, or fail to pay our taxes uh, on time or be honest about them. In fact, it seems that one way that we are accountable to God is to be accountable to the state. So Peter says, show proper respect to everyone, fear God and honour the emperor or the king in the NIV. But let's just be clear what Peter cannot be saying, alright? Two things. First of all, and I know that some people will probably disagree with me and you're entitled obviously to do so, but... I don't think that Peter is saying that everyone in government, all the governments throughout history have been ordained by God to be there. I don't think it's saying that. I don't think it's saying that the Nazis were ordained by God to rule Germany in the 1930s and early 1940s. I don't think uh, we can say that Chairman Mao was, in some, was, was ordained to rule, to rule China during the Cultural Revolution with his deranged ideas that resulted in the deaths of tens of millions of people. I don't think we can say that Everyone who's in government is ordained by God to be there. Uh, but what I think that Peter is saying is that the office of the state is ordained by God. It's not, necessar- not the person who's in the office, but the office itself is ordained by God. The state is an ordained role which is ordained by God. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I think we can say to qualify this is that Peter can't be saying that Christians must obey the state in every circumstance. So, uh, for example, if, um, if the government drafted me to fight a war uh, that I thought was an unjust war, then I would refuse to go. Uh, I don't think I would be compelled to obey the state if it went against my Christian conscience. And so, for example, if one of my daughters, let's imagine in the future one of my daughters, was drafted into the army, then I would do everything I could to prevent them from going. Uh, because I don't, I don't think women should be frontline soldiers. I think there are lots of roles in the army that women can do, but I don't think that they can be frontline soldiers. And if my daughters were going to be drafted in to be frontline soldiers, I would do everything I could to stop them from going. Um, so, and for example, um, if my children were in a state school and they were expected to go on a pride march, then I would say no every time. Um, these things are getting very complicated, aren't they? Uh, I read this week, for example, in, the, in my own country, the United Kingdom, uh, many people are having their bank accounts closed because they, they engage in activities which oppose the pride movement, the LGBT movement, having their bank accounts closed, and other banks will not give them a bank account, which is actually a very sinister kind of move. So your political beliefs are determining whether you're, you're able to actually engage in economic activity. Uh, kind of very serious move it's a very sinister move as well so the point is that submission isn't always warranted and in many things it is not Um, and of course as well there are many grey areas which come down to the individual Christian's conscience so there are certain things even as Christians that we should say that person believes that and I believe something slightly different but as long as you're convinced in your own mind that's good and I'll support you but I have a slightly different view There are many things that are not like that, but that's the kind of Christian conscience issue, that we have to respect other people's uh, views on on certain things. So, um, when you read these words of Peter, or the words of Paul in Romans 13, 
You have to remember that, that Jesus himself repeatedly disobeyed the religious laws of his own country, the nation of Israel, when he was on the earth. And even more so, Paul disobeyed Roman civic law repeatedly when he, as he travelled around the empire preaching the gospel. Because once it was decided by the Roman authorities that Christianity was not a subset of Judaism, which they did, then, they made, then Christianity became illegal in the empire, but Paul kept preaching. So Paul tells us to submit to the state. But on numerous occasions, well, all the, his whole of his, his existence and life, he spent disobeying the state by preaching the gospel. Can you see the complexity of this, these kind of issues? So what Peter must be saying here <coughs> is that Christians should obey the state, providing its laws don't contravene those of God and those of our conscience. So let me just read you the words of um, John Stott in uh, his commentary on Romans. He says, If the state commands what God forbids, or forbids what God commands, then it is our plain Christian duty to resist and not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. But I think the point of all this is that when the state is performing its God-given role, we are called to obey it. And of course we should remember that just because the state is a divinely ordained agency, it doesn't mean that in a fallen world like ours that its authority can't be misused. Of course it can. Or that it can't become corrupt. Of course it can. Even a cursory glance at human history shows us that repeatedly. I've lived in nations that, where it's hard to find anything about the state that is not corrupt. But I think that we're on safe ground to say that the Christian is called to submit to the state right up to the point where to follow the state's law means to disobey God. And that seems to apply whether the government is elected or whether it's not elected. For the government that Peter was talking about here certainly wasn't elected when he tells Christians to submit. But moving on from this, what, what role does the state have according to Peter? Well, what's interesting about our passage is that we find an endorsement of something that is universally agreed upon as the primary role of the state, which is the enforcement of justice. He writes that we are to submit to, amongst others, governors who are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, I'm not saying that the state doesn't have other roles, but we can deduce from these verses that at the very least, God's appointed role for the state is to contain the forces of sin and evil in a society. You see, without a state or government to promote justice, then very quickly societies degenerate into situations where the rich and the powerful assume control and the weak and the vulnerable get trampled upon and gangs and tribes emerge as the means of forging some kind of group security as maybe we see today in a country like Somalia. Far better to have a state to enforce justice by apprehending and trying and punishing the weak, uh, sorry, the, the, the guilty and protecting the weak from them. You see, we need strong government, government in terms of law and order uh, because uh, a good government can provide a measure of peace, it can protect private property uh, and ensure an environment where business can occur, where commerce can occur. And from a church's point of view, the gospel can be spread if there's law and order. So, according to Peter, 
the main role of the state is to enforce justice and righteousness in a nation. So that's Peter's first special case. Um, so acting as it's to kind of summarise, acting as it, as it is supposed to do, uh, the state should be a force for good. And as such, Christians ought to be good citizens of their state. And not to think that because our citizenship, our final citizenship is in heaven, that we can ignore the laws of, laws of the state. As Peter says here, Christians are in one sense, Peter says here, Christians are in one sense free of all men, and they answer only to God. But he says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And then look what he says in verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I think this gives us a clue as to what was going on with these believers in the first century. So remember that, remember the kind of things that the, the pagan citizens of the Roman Empire were saying about Christians uh, in these years. They were saying things like this, that their loyalty was not to the gods of Rome, but it was to the God of the Jews, so they were politically disloyal. They said something like this, that in taking the Lord's Supper and reciting, this is my body and my blood, that it was this accusation against them that they were cannibals. Um, and when they called the Lord's Supper the agape feast, which they did, agape meaning love, uh, the, the, the charge uh, was put against them that they were, they were gathering for sexual orgies. And because Christians had no statues of their God, which was kind of unheard of in those days, then they were, they were accused of being atheists, which of course in those days was a dreadful thing. The worst thing you could be was an atheist. So because they had no statues of God, they must be atheists. So all, there was all this gossip about the early church, the early Christians, lots of false rumours. And, and Peter is saying here that there was no better response to all of that nonsense than to be good citizens. There's no better way to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So Peter, as a way of counteracting the, the critics of the church, is encouraging good Christian behaviour. So that's the first section, that's verses 13 to 17, to submit to the authorities instituted by God among human beings. And his second one is this, that he talks to he addresses Christian slaves or servants. This is my second heading. So living as slaves or servants, which is 18 to 25. So slavery was huge during the days of the Roman Empire. So as the Roman army um, conquered its way through the known world uh, and they conquered some new part of the world they would capture vast numbers of men, women and children uh, and they would sell them to slave traders who followed the Roman army who were waiting around to make money they can be waiting in the wings to, to buy all of these slaves from the Roman army so these slave traders would uh, gather up these slaves and they would ship them to different parts of the empire and sell them on the slave block it was a way of making big money. So, for example, about 50 to 60 years before Christ, uh, during the Gallic Wars, uh, Julius Caesar sold 53,000 people to slave traders in one day alone. 53,000. 
So ordinary people were ripped out of their homes and off their lands. Families were separated, husbands and wives. Children were taken away from their uh, parents to be slaves. So there was never any hope that they'd be reunited ever again in this life. Uh, So at the time of Christ, (coughs) about 40% of what is now Italy was made up of slaves. And of course Rome had this really crude... Uh, but highly effective way to keep uh, slaves in line. They dangle the threat of public crucifixion over them the whole time, and for the most part it worked. It was either you knuckle down as a slave and you work, or you face being nailed to a stake or a cross and hung up to die. The Romans knew the power of deterrent. You only have to see one slave crucified, and that would be enough to strike terror into your heart for the rest of your life. I think sometimes we in the church have sanitised how we understand the cross. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He said, Crucifixion only became popular in art after those who'd seen a real one died out. Do you understand that? So those who are saying if you'd seen a real crucifixion, you'd never want to draw the scene. It was so uh, traumatising. But the, the punishment for rebelling as a slave in the Roman Empire was crucifixion. You know, when I was at school there was this this very silly idea around that, that the classical world of Roman Roman Greece kind of gave us civilization and decency and that Christianity gave us superstition and oppression. I was raised to think that by my teachers at school. But increasingly historians are coming to the conclusion that it was exactly the opposite. There's this recognition that Rome was evil and barbaric. It was an evil and barbaric Uh, empire and that it was Christianity that gave us freedom and kindness and compassion you know Rome was was wicked, it was barbaric, it was an empire that was built on blood and soaked in blood now uh, in the days of the Roman Empire before Christ and during the time of Christ uh, slavery was not even a topic of debate um, until the the Judeo-Christian idea emerged that Human beings are all equal because they're all equally made in God's image. Nobody even thought that slavery was an issue. If you read Plato or Aristotle, um, there's not even a hint of, the, of any concern about slavery whatsoever. So, so Plato in his Republic, so Plato describes uh, the perfect world, the perfect society in his Republic, and he writes this. He says, slaves will be necessary to do the manual labour. Nature creates some slavish people without the capacity for virtue, which is goodness, or culture or intellectual development. Uh, Plato wrote, slaves do not have souls and they can be treated in any way that their masters want to treat them. Aristotle, another Greek philosopher, he said, some people are by nature slaves. They are necessary so that enlightened people will have time to pursue pure wisdom and virtue. In other words, uh, ordinary people can philosophize and think about the world while the slaves do the work. Um, now, it's good to remember that from the days of the church until the collapse of the Roman Empire, which is, which is considered to be about 476 AD, there were, there were many, many people who were uh, both Christians and slaves. So perhaps the majority of early believers were slaves. And they needed advice, and both Paul and Peter give them advice. So what does Peter say to them here? Well, in verse 18 he says, uh, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, 
not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, sorry, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Alright, so these verses are likely to jar against our modern sensitivities. So, it's verses like this that have led many people to argue that the New Testament apostles endorse slavery. Uh, I've watched many debates between atheists and Christians, um, and this comes up repeatedly uh, from the atheists that the Bible supports slavery. And so you might read this kind of thing and say, well, Whatever the Bible says, aren't we to, to resist the pressure and stand up for our rights? Well, let me just make a few comments about that kind of response. You see, this passage, in, there is no passage in the New Testament that is promoting or endorsing slavery. I don't know if I have to talk to you about Old Testament slavery, that's a kind of different thing. But in the New Testament, there are no passages that endorse slavery or promote it. You see, what passages like this are trying to do is to help Christian slaves to to handle their situation well. Now, the second thing to say is that if you come from North America or Europe, like I do, uh, then when you think of, of slavery, very likely the kind of image that you have in your mind is the North Atlantic slave trade, which we call the Middle Passage, which was mainly, of course, in the 18th century. And it's good to remember that slavery in the New Testament was often quite a different affair than the North Atlantic slave trade. So very often we should not use the word slave for the Greek word doulos. Uh, We should use the word servant, as the ESV does here, uses the word servant. The NIV uses the word slave. But in the classical world, the world of Greece and Rome, slavery took many forms, and some slavery was very oppressive. So if you were sent as a slave down the salt mines, you probably never came out alive, because most of them died. It was a kind of death sentence. But on other occasions, slaves were beloved members of families, and they were looked after and cared for. There were many examples from literature of of slaves who served as tutors, kind of homeschoolers to children. Uh, There were slaves who worked as musicians, who played instruments for the family as they relaxed in the evenings. So that's also worth bearing in mind as well. That So our image of um, North Atlantic slavery and say, uh, slavery in the American South before the Civil War isn't necessarily an accurate picture of the kind of slavery that is being encountered here. And slavery took many, many forms. The third thing to say is that slavery was so normal in the ancient world. It was so woven into the structure of the society that it couldn't have been abolished all in one go without the whole fabric of society collapsing. The whole of the Greco-Roman world was built on slavery. And for these and other reasons, Peter and Paul don't tell slaves to rebel against their masters. They, They accept the slave's lot in life without endorsing it as being a good thing in any way. They didn't put on slaves the burden of having to rebel against it. You see, because rebelling against slavery would have led to a very early death. You know, today we we very easily talk about 
resisting oppression. We talk about fighting discrimination. We talk about our rights. Uh, and when we do so, we know that the legal system is largely on our side. We know that the media is on our side. The media will take any side of anybody they consider to be a victim. But it wasn't like that in New Testament times. Rebellion was suicide. The next thing to bear in mind is that although the, although the New Testament never condemns slavery outright, it never implies that slavery is a permanent state of affairs, like, for example, marriages. Marriage is part of a fabric of God's universe. It's established by God between a man and a woman. But slavery is not that kind of institution that marriage is, and it's never considered to be. But also... When you come to passages like Ephesians 6, and we don't have time to, to, to read it this morning, but when you come to passages like Ephesians 6 where Paul, where Paul addresses slavery, then he stresses the equality, the essential equality between a slave and the slave master. And when, he, when Paul wrote things like that, then he, he sowed the seeds for the final destruction of slavery. Not that slavery has been abolished in the world, but it's been outlawed in most countries of the world. You see, in Roman law... There was no such thing as equality in their legal system. So slave masters owned their slaves and they had total rights over them. They could do whatever they wanted with their slaves. They could kill them and there was no redress. Slaves had absolutely no rights and they had no access to the legal system. But Paul, and this was very radical, incredibly radical for the time. Paul in Ephesians taught that the gospel bestows rights on slaves and he insists that they are to be treated with justice because they're human beings. Well, that was radical as well because slaves were not considered to be human beings. Plato, you notice, said that human beings don't have a soul. So they can be treated in any way because they're not really human. Uh, and Paul and Peter challenged that idea. And even more radical was Paul's teaching that the slave master has the same Lord in heaven as his slaves, and both the slave and the slave master must both give an account for how they live and how they treat each other to God. And you know, it was revolutionary ideas like these, and also the Exodus narrative. Um, I remember reading once that many of the slave owners in the American South, um, when they gave, they wanted uh, their slaves to read the Bible, uh, because they wanted them to read passages like this, but they, they would rip out the chapter of uh, the book of Exodus from the Bible in case their slaves read the Exodus narrative about slaves being released from Egypt, and it gave them ideas. So it was, it was, it was ideas like this, and it was also the Exodus narrative um, of Jews coming out of slavery in Egypt that, that planted the seeds of the abolition of slavery. And of course I'm not implying that slavery doesn't exist in the world today. There were probably more slaves today than there were uh, 200 years ago. But it's all very, very hidden. Uh, so, many years ago, I, I saw an old British war film made in black. It was a black and white film when I was a child. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Uh, there were these British commando soldiers and they were sent to destroy a dam. And they arrived at this dam uh, and uh, they lay this explosive charge at the foot of the dam and, and, then they, uh, um, and then they kind of run away and they escape up the sides of the valley and they wait for this enormous explosion and for the dam to, to collapse in a moment. But eventually all they hear is this very small bang and there's lots of smoke and the soldiers, they round on the man who's the explosives expert and they say, 
we failed to destroy the dam. And he says, be patient. Wait and see. And they wait half an hour more and then nothing happens. And they turn on him again. They say, nothing's happening. We've not destroyed the dam. And he says again to them, be patient. And then after a while, they begin to hear the concrete cracking. And in a few seconds, millions of gallons of water force open this crack. An old dam bursts and all the water flows down the valley and they've achieved their objective. You see, the explosives expert, he knew that only a small explosion would crack the dam and water pressure would do the rest. And here's my point, this radical teaching of the New Testament of Paul and Peter, it was like a small explosive charge which eventually destroyed the idea that, that, that slavery was acceptable, especially in countries that took the Bible seriously. So with all that background, let's just think about what Peter's saying in verses 18 to 20. So the issue that Peter is addressing here is the Christian slaves or the Christian servants' testimony. He's not addressing whether slavery is a good thing or a bad thing. He's just addressing their testimony of the Christian slave or the Christian servant, particularly those who were treated harshly or unfairly by their master. Now I think that the key to interpret this text is a little phrase that you find in uh, verse 12. He says, being mindful of God. That's kind of right in the middle of this passage. In verse 12, being mindful of God or being conscious of God. You see, when you read this passage and think about how slaves are to behave, then, and it's the same in many, many contexts, being conscious of God, it changes your outlook on everything. And I mean everything, you know, Especially how we see suffering. Being mindful of God changes how we see suffering and how we see the whole world. It's one of the secrets to life, to be always mindful of God in the midst of difficulties. So, being mindful of God, Peter urges believing slaves to submit to both good and gentle masters alike. So, he removes that burden that they have to rebel or run away or be some kind of a hero and get themselves crucified. Because, you see... The Christian who is ever mindful of God, the Christian slave, remembers that he or she has this cosmic hope and that enables him or her to endure all kinds of trouble in this life. So the Christian believes that this world is not a terminus. Uh, this, as C.S. Lewis said, this world is not the real world. The real world is yet to come. This world is just a probation. There is a a world to come and that world will provide such compensation for any suffering that we have here that the suffering that we experience here, even when you're a slave, will be as nothing. There is no pain in this life that heaven will not heal a billion times over. Being conscious of God, it changes our outlook as to how what we can cope with. You see, being conscious of God changes everything. You don't have to fight. You don't have to get revenge. You don't have to to wallow in self-pity. You don't have to nurse your hurts when you're a slave or in any other context because it's the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. Everything else becomes trivial in one sense in comparison because there is this cosmic hope which is stored up for the believer. And you see, living like that, it gives you freedom from other people and what they do to you. It allows you to have the freedom to love somebody even when they treat you badly. You see, this is one of the ironies of love, that you can only really love people that when you are free of them and when you derive your strength from God himself. I remember speaking to a lady 
several years ago and she had a very difficult husband. He wasn't, he wasn't violent towards her but he was verbally abusive and uh, she had no intention of leaving him but she, she found life very, very difficult and she told me all about the things that he'd said to her that had hurt her over the years and how she couldn't love him. And I said to her, you'll only be able to love your husband when you're free from him. You'll only be able to love your husband when you're free from him. Free from him. Free from him. And that, what I said to her changed her life. Because she emotionally extracted herself from his verbal oppression and control. To the point where, in the end, she said to me, he has no power over me anymore. He can't hurt me any longer. She said, all of my springs are in God. Because he has so changed me that he gives me the strength to be in that relationship. You see, she was free to love him finally. And she learned to love him no matter what he was like. Her hope was not that she was looking to have a perfect and kind and understanding husband anymore. Her hope was in God himself. And this is really what Peter is talking about here. He's saying that being so God conscious changes our outlook on everything. This is just so countercultural um, to the way that we are taught to think, which is to fight for our rights. But actually, because Christ won for us, there are many things we do not have to fight for and win for win. Because Christ has won the final battle, which is for our final destiny to be with God in heaven forever. So Peter says in verse 20, now my time has gone, he says in verse 20 that if you suffer for doing good, then it doesn't give you much value because you've brought the consequences on yourself. But if you suffer unjustly and you're mindful of God, conscious of God, and you don't retaliate and don't get angry, then you've done something commendable to God. You see, you've avoided the normal path of human behaviour, which is to retaliate and to get even, to get angry. But when you don't do that, but you forgive and you... you, uh, you um, you love in response to evil towards you, then you show the genuineness of your Christian faith and, com- and, co- and, and convictions. And in doing so, says Peter, you follow in the path of another who pioneered this way perfectly, who is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. For this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might, that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live to, to sin, sorry, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is so countercultural. You know, we live, we come from, most of us, many of us come from cultures where you're told to stand up for your rights, to set your boundaries and to stand up to bullies. And there's a time to stand up to bullies. I'm not saying that. But in this context, it wasn't possible to do so. Uh, so, And Peter's saying, ever mindful of God, remember that Jesus suffered unjustly, and you may suffer unjustly too, but he didn't fight back. But through his actions, he secured our salvation. He committed himself to God, knowing that God will bring justice in the end, and he will bring justice for you too. One day, you can be sure of that. There is no injustice in the end. Because God is such a remarkable God, 
He's saying to these slaves, you can be sure that some good will come out of your captivity in the end. Can you see that being mindful of God changes everything? So I better just summarise and stop. So uh, Peter is saying that Christians should be good citizens of the state. But he's also saying that slaves are to be submissive to their masters. And maybe we could say this, that we are to be good employees. Or maybe we are to be good, uh, we're to be good um, mission workers in our mission agency. I don't think of context where this might apply to us. I'm going to finish by reading the words of Tertullian, the church father. Tertullian was a church father lived between 160 and 220 years after Christ. And he wrote these words about the early believers, the early Christians, which are very powerful words. And they kind of confirm that all that Peter teaches here was being lived out in the lives of believers. He said, Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor by customs which they observe, but they display to us their wonderful and striking method of life. Christians dwell in their own countries, but simply as aliens. As citizens they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if they are foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, and yet they do, not, they do not destroy their offspring, as was common for pagans. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the law by their lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and yet and condemned. They are put to death and they are restored to life. They are poor and yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet they abound in all. They are dishonoured and yet in their very dishonour they are glorified. They are, spoken, they are evil spoken of and yet they are righteous. They are reviled and yet they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honour. They do good and yet they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Gentiles. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So what I wanted to do in reading that to you was to, to show you how many of these radical ideas of Peter worked out um, in the lives of the early believers and that, that was written about a hundred years later You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand For more information please view our website at www.ccfth.org